0: Hi, welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Jessica Rowley and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emma Kennedy and Emily Crosby have had with guests from across the world about consultation in psychology. Myself and Emily are trainee educational psychologists at the Tavistock & Portman NHS Trust and Dr Emma Kennedy is deputy course director and teaches the consultation module on the Doctorate in Educational Psychology course. The three of us have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes, and if you want any more information or are interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch. Hi, welcome to this episode of Conversations About Consultation. We're really excited and delighted today to be speaking with Sharona Maytel and Ingrid Highlander. Emma met both Sharona and Ingrid through the International School Psychology Association Conference, or ISPA for short, where they were both co-chairs of the Consultee-Centered Consultation Task Force, which is part of ISPA. Both have had really long involvement with training psychologists in consultancy, as well as being practitioners and prolific publishers in the field. Ingrid was an Associate Professor at the Karolinski in Sweden, and Sharona has been the Director of Service and Deputy Chief Psychologist for Israel's North Region. The two met at ISPA a number of years ago and have since both been really involved together in consultation research and practice. We begin by hearing little about their journeys to becoming psychologists. We hope you enjoy the episode as much as we enjoyed speaking with Sharona and Ingrid.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It's an absolute delight to have you both here with us, especially from a trainee's perspective, where we're just starting out our journeys in consultation. And um, so I guess what would be really interesting to hear about is what made you both want to become psychologists and a bit about your journey um, to becoming psychologists. Go ahead. OK, well, then we go far back. This
2: is back in the 1960s. Uh, In Sweden at that time, programs for psychologists were just very new at the university, so when I started there were very few psychologists in Sweden. We had them, but there were very few and new university programs. So I started a program, I was there for three years and uh, then I went on to get a master. And at that time I was employed by the university doing some lecturing and, and I was very ambivalent. Uh, Should I stay at the university or should I continue as a psychologist? And I was actually more uh, leaning towards the university. But then I went out and did the internship in the school and I thought it was so much fun. So I decided that I went on to get my my license as a psychologist uh, with a master, and then it took about 30 years before I came back to the university and did my PhD. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. And I liked working at the school. So so that's what I continued with for a long time.
3: Well, I think Ingrid and I are close enough in age. We started out at around the same time in the 60s. Uh, I actually um, immigrated From the US to Israel and continued and did my undergraduate studies at Tel Aviv University. Uh, Toward the end of my undergrad studies, I really debated what I wanted to continue to doing. Uh, Before that, even growing up, I had always had interests in uh, social activism in many ways. And You know, most people wanted to do clinical psychology, but I wasn't sure because I really wanted to work with children and a wonderful woman named Sarah Smilansky, Professor Sarah Smilansky, whom some people may know of, um, who studied children's play and um, children's response, uh, grief responses, etc. at the time was beginning a new program in educational psychology, a master's program. And she encouraged me and said, Sharona, come study with us. And I did, and I was never sorry. um, From our first year of the master's program we had, we were involved in the schools doing practicum work and involved in uh, child psychiatric clinics doing practicum work, you know, we did both. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I finished that program, debated. My, I'm actually writing my master's thesis, got delayed somewhat uh, with family and with the Yom Kippur war that broke out here at Israel and being on sabbatical and all kinds of things. But in the end, um, I did. Uh, uh, we had an opportunity when my husband went on sabbatical for me to do a doctorate, and I did a doctorate at Temple University. Um, we were able to go abroad for several years, and I did my doctorate in the U.S. and then came back here to Israel. And I've been working in the system and alongside that, doing adjunct teaching and, you know, moving my way up, becoming not just certified, but a certified supervisor and trainer, mm. Mm. The school psychologists. Um, it's, it's so
4: fascinating and it's I suppose really Sharon particularly when you talk about Israel um, it, it feels like a place to start in a way in terms of it being the cradle uh, for consultation and the work of Gerald Kaplan and I think what sometimes is less well known in the UK was that Kaplan you know, had had trained as an adult psychiatrist in either mm-hmm. Liverpool or Manchester, I can't remember which, but had then come to London to do his child psychiatry training before he went to, to Israel. Um, and actually, for us in particular, he, he was a little bit at the Tavistock because some of his child psychiatry training was with John Bowlby. Um, mm-hmm. And he had an honorary contract, I understand, within the, the adult department. So for us, it's a, you know, such a, a connection, I guess, to... Who we would see as the sort of you know originator of this idea of, of counseling the counselors and i guess you know it is a the point around mental health consultation and i know obviously consultee center consultation has really evolved from there but before getting into that evolution um i think we would just be really keen to hear a little bit about what both of you would feel the value of, of Kaplan's work, what, what he did that was different or innovative and how he responded to such a particular set of circumstances that he encountered and actually, you know, completely changed ideas about how one would work with mental health and wellness um, and the support that was needed at the time. We really, yeah, any thoughts you feel are particularly good to, for us to hang on to or to think about in terms of what he was doing originally.
3: Well, I don't know if anyone has told the story of how Kaplan um, developed consultation.
4: Um, Well, we would love to hear, uh, I don't think anybody has actually so far. So if, if you could share that with us, I think we would, yeah, it would be amazing.
3: An interesting story because he came here to Israel to help in the early days of the state and there were numerous uh, refugee um, youth who are being put into these uh, centers in these boarding school type setups and working. I believe he was working for Hadassah and they came to him and they said, we need psychiatric evaluations. We need th- therapy for these children. They've, you know, this is post-World War II, post-Holocaust, all of these surviving children, they've been through terrible traumas. And he said, he looked at what was happening. There was no infrastructure that would enable him to get to them or them to get to him. There were certainly not enough psychologists or social workers to do the work that would need to be done. And that was the original impetus for his deciding that the thing to do would be to work with the uh, leaders, the youth counselors and teachers who are working with the youth and having them be the service deliverers and looking at how they were helping the the kids and, and what was happening with them. It's very interesting because Um, I forget which book he wrote it in, one of his later books, he mentions the fact that he did um, meet quite a bit of opposition, particularly from the mostly psychodynamically trained people, uh, who were predominant at the time, still have a very large influence here in Israel, and I don't know whether he predicted it or somebody noted that it happened. That when he left Israel and did not continue with it here, a lot of the consultation, the ideas of consultation, on the one hand they remained, but on the other hand they were they were less uh, predominant. the The influence waned. Um, I think that people working in uh, educational psychology and because of the needs of the school relative to the uh, manpower to meet all those needs, uh, we very quickly adopted consultation approaches. When I was studying, it was clear, you know, we we studied Kaplan, and certainly when I studied with Joel Myers, we really got into it. it, when I look at my uh, trainees today, many of them are far less influenced or uh, knowledgeable about Kaplan. And I think it's a real loss. It's it's interesting that they, you know, don't know the roots of, of what they're doing. I, I, you know, it's so interesting
4: because my presumption was they would be like, Matt, you know, this happened here. And, you know, like would be really like knowing the the legacy uh, and right. where that had come from, that's really, really interesting. And then Ingrid in terms of, I know in the research in school consultation, the the second edition, you had a chapter and you were talking about kind of research and consultee centered consultation and how, you know, the, the original kind of mental health model and how that evolved and changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you know, like sort of the theoretical foundations kind of changing a little bit, the kind of way in which the sort of consultant's role changed within the organisation. Could you maybe just say a little bit more about that? Again, maybe some of our, our, our listeners might be a bit less familiar with the kind of, the common features, I guess, and absolutely where the, the unique distinctiveness comes into.
2: Of, of Gerald Kaplan? Uh, well, I think it was very distinctive when he when came. His book, the first book, uh, or it's not his first book, but about uh, consultation, the theory and practice of, of mental health consultation, it got known in Sweden around uh, 1980 or something like that. That's when I got to know it too. And uh, it some colleagues, we, we read it together and we thought that this is something very special. What's special with it, I think that what he did, he, he did professionalize something that many psychologists thought that they had been doing. But now he said, this is what it is. It should be a voluntary process. Uh, it should be that, the, that there is a consultee there who still is one who's responsible for the work he's doing. And uh, there are different types of consultation that you, it could be a client center or consultee centered. Uh, and he digital and also think that he was very, uh, very practical man, It <laughs> developed through really practice. But also if I continue your story about Kaplan, Sharon, uh, I know that Kaplan told me once about these, why it sort of faded away because it did in uh, the US. Uh, he was practicing at the Boston Mental Health Uh, Massachusetts Mental Health Mm -hmm. uh, Hospital and in Boston, it sort of uh, faded away. And Kaplan was here in Sweden twice in the 1990s, uh, where we had conferences on consultative centered consultation with international conferences. Uh, And he was here and he was still very active. And uh, what he told me about why this happened, he said, that those therapists that were supposed to be uh, consultants, they worked at the psychiatric clinic and they were trained in psychodynamic methods and they weren't trained enough in consultation. So when they went to meet teachers or nurses or other types of consultees, uh, when they didn't have the tools, the consultation tools, they started doing therapy. And of course, teachers didn't want therapy, so they got thrown out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's something uh, that you need to learn because also that you need training. You need lots of training. Absolutely. It's not just yeah. what you do. Mm. Yeah, I, it's
4: such a it's such a help because I think it's one of those things that people seem it, it's 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 a beautifully simple idea, mm-hmm. but it, it that then maybe masks or hides the complexity of the task and the need to be well trained and well supported. Mm-hmm. I one thing that the trainees and I have spoken a little bit about over over the time has been this idea of you know consultation is a is a professionally helpful relationship and it should be about professionally helping another person. Um, who, with a work-related problem. I think because maybe some of the underpinning skills that come, say, to the fore in supervision, in consultation, does that then lend itself sometimes to a blurring of boundaries or to a, a mixed, confused kind of engagement or contracting? And, and would you guys recognize that as, a, as something that you
3: have also encountered in your own work? Uh, I certainly encounter it all the time. Um, and it's, there is a blurring because of the overlap in skills and uh, also because of the, um, um, the reputation or the valuation of being a therapist as opposed to being a school consultant. Um, everyone wants to be a psychotherapist Uh, And so the tendency is to emphasize the psychotherapeutic skills um, uh, rather than the consultation skills. Uh, A tendency of people who come from a um, psychotherapy background to believe that, well, if I have the psychotherapy skills, I don't really need to add another skill. in teaching consultation, I've always seen that that's one of the key issues is helping the students understand the fine lines between them. And I think one of the key issues, and we've talked about it a lot in our um, roundtables at ISPA, and we've had a number of them, and Emma, you've agreed to help me this summer with a round table. One of the key issues, I think, is that differentiation, and it's adopting a different attitude or a different perception of the person that we're working with rather than the skills we bring to the table when we do the consultation.
2: Yeah, if I I can continue there, I think that there is always the two risks that uh, the consultant either gets to become the therapist of. The client or the therapist of the consultee Mm
3: -hmm.
2: instead of seeing that uh, the consultant is working with the interaction between the client and the consultee and that's where you expect the change Mm -hmm. i think this is a development that has been more emphasized now that it is this type of interaction that we're working with that all kinds of related the relations are interactive.
3: Yeah. The the other thing that I might add that I've been finding in the workshops I've done locally in the last few years and supervision is that thinking systemically, working at a systems level, which consultation often requires whether it's the consultee and the client or multiple consultees or the consultee the organization is as the focus of the consultation uh thinking systemically is quite is is more complicated it's messier and people prefer to try to keep things circumscribed
2: (laughs) yeah and the system is so important when you are working as a consultant you have to know Mm -hmm. the organization you have to know which is your role in this organization? Is it possible for you to be a consultant? When is it not possible for you to be a consultant? Mm-hmm. And also to really make the ground for consultation. And there you need to work on different levels in order to see both of the level with the consultees but also on the level of the lead of the organization in order to have a mandate as a consultant. Right. And in order to get the people leading the organization to understanding what consultation can really develop.
0: I guess um, it's really interesting to hear both of you speak about this and especially again from a trainee perspective Um, it's very like worldly knowledge <laughs> um, <laughs> and hopefully one day we'll be there but I was wondering a little bit about you know when you first heard about consultation or your early experiences of doing consultation and how it felt then and how you kind of came to an understanding of what consultation meant whether it was through experience or practice that you kind of developed that and also I guess linked to what you were just saying in terms of was there a framework that you did follow that was really helpful for that or yeah did you kind of muddle through and develop it yourself like yeah what were your kind of early experiences of doing consultation like
2: I can give you a story, which uh, I sometimes do, because I think that's when I really got the idea of what consultation was. Uh, I was very, very young, and was very early uh, in my career, and I was doing almost anything as a school psychologist. I was doing assessment, I was collaborating, I was doing family therapy, I was doing absolutely everything, and not very professionally, I think. Uh, but then. Uh, I was supposed to, at the time, to do assessments of children who just started school if the teachers thought that they were not mature enough to start school. Then they were put back to, to, to kindergarten again. And I thought it was awful to do these assessments, uh, but I know I had to. And I met this uh, teacher who said, I have this boy, he's very, very mature, and can you do an assessment? And I said, yes, of course, but I have very much to do. Um, so can you start just uh, checking up uh, what, what can he do? Can he write anything? Can he draw? Can he hold his pencil? Just these kind of things. And next time I came back to the school, I thought, oh, I have to talk to this teacher. And she came to me and she said, well, you know, he's rather clever. That's not the problem. Um, But he is so unfocused, he's all over the place all the time. Can't you just come in and observe him? So I said, yes, I will do that, Uh, but I do that next time. So but meanwhile, can't you do some observations, just see what happens when you do instructions, what happens in Ruizas, what happens uh, during different situations, just small, small observations. And then uh, uh, when I came back, I thought, oh, I go and do this observation. And then she told she, the teacher came out of the classroom and she said, "Well, you know, uh, and now I know what the problem is. It's his mother. He has no limits whatsoever. I think he's up all the night watching TV. It was TV at that time. It was not 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 uh, a cell phone playing or anything. <laughs> uh, so can't you talk to his mother about this? About what a seven-year-old is supposed to do?" And I said. Yes, I can, but you have to uh, talk to her first. So she knows that I'm phoning her. And then nothing happened and I forgot it. And when I came back about a month later, I saw the teacher and I asked her, oh, what happened to that boy? And she said, well, he is very mature, that's true. But I have such a good relationship with this mother. So we work out everything, we're fine. <laughs> So I thought I'd done nothing, and it turned out so well. Mm. And of course, this was a very good teacher. She was professional. When she saw the, this uh, boy, she could see what it was about. But still, I started thinking that I should work much more with the teachers. So I tried to do it uh, and realized how difficult it was. That that just didn't work. They didn't want to listen to me or they didn't want to do it. They wanted me to take uh, care of the kids instead. So after that, I uh, changed my position. I worked at the child guidance clinics. I wanted to learn more about relationship and communication. Uh, And I worked with family therapy, which I thought was very good, learning learning how to communicate in family and and in the system. Um, so I think and that's where I discovered Gerald Kaplan's book. And mm. then we were a couple of colleagues reading it. So th- that's my way into it.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess consultation and Kaplan was part of my training from the get-go, um, but I, can, I had similar experiences with them wanting me to, to test any child that had difficulties, and I can, um, well, tell two stories of of a of a school, um, a school that had just opened, that I was working with, um, was actually a rather large school. It opened very quickly, um, with a very uh, high socioeconomic, um, you know, uh, a population with very high socioeconomic. Uh, level, people with good backgrounds, some of them professors, you know, doctors, professors, all these wonderful professionals who had moved into this new neighborhood, and they opened this big school, and they came to me, and they asked for my help with particular students who were having serious behavior problems, Um, and particularly some of the younger children, and I started Asking when it was happening, what was happening, and they started telling me about this child and that child. And I said, "Well, you know, uh, why don't I observe what's going on during the because it was happening during the recess time? I'll observe what's going on during the recess time. I'll watch." They wanted me to watch the specific kid child, of course, but I watched because I had been trained to look at the system, I was watching what was going on with all the children. And what I saw was the teachers were together who were supposed to be monitoring, were together in cliques having their private rest time conversation. The children were running wild in this open field that had no equipment because it was a new building and et cetera. And, you know, and and they were bumping into each other and getting into fights, etc. And I went back to the principal who had turned to me to say, you've got to test Joey and you've got to test this kid and see what's going on in their families, and you know, things are not right. And I said, you know, I said, maybe we need to change the way the recess is structured is there some way um, to, to organize the children's play activities? Can we somehow organize the, the schoolyard? And she said, no, there's no budget, it's no way, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I guess, I, as I said, I come from a social activist background uh, always was from the time I was in high school. And I said, well, we've got to find a way to do this. You know, we have quality parents. We got to think together with the parent association. And she sort of grudgingly said, well, okay. And as we were talking, we realized that the, the and it came partly through the parents. Uh, they organized to paint, um different games onto the asphalt and then we figured out together with uh some in one of the brainstorming meetings that we had well maybe the older children in the 5th and 6th grade can organize the young children and be the supervisors of, and play with them you know teach them to play soccer or, or things of that sort and it was amazing because there remained one or two children who had problem behaviors, but the majority disappeared. Um, so that was something that really reinforced. It was my early, early years as a, an educational psychologist I had just started. I don't think I was even certified yet, um, but it made me realize how important it was to work at that systems and even community level because we uh, organize the parents and explain mm. to them developmentally what children need. Mm. Um,
4: I think what you're both reminding me of um, and what, you know, is so critical is the prospective consultee can conceive of your role in one way, as in, as a tester, as a, an assessor, as a, go and tell the parents or go, but and your openness to just accepting the role that's being assigned to you and or the capacity to be able to reflect and to think about actually, should I take on this role? Mm -hmm. Um, And is this kind of what I need to be able to do or what I should be able to do? Or is this what, yeah, the diagnosis of what the problem is that's been arrived at by the teacher or the head teacher Um, is that accurate and is that the best way for me for me to proceed and I guess it would kind of fit very much for us with Edgar Schein's work around process consultation Mm -hmm. and and kind of you know don't don't get too too sucked in too quickly (laughs) to what the person thinks the issue may be um that there is the the need to maybe slow things down just a little bit at that outset and to kind of contract quite clearly around role and I'm I'm sure Emily and, and Jess would recognize times when what has been initially asked of you, um, mm. as Sharon and, and Ingrid are describing, perhaps might be slightly different to what you may think, I you know, I could or, or should be doing.
3: Right, I, I think that um, also the, the, my training uh, and, and knowledge of Kaplan's work and the emphasis, I, in Israel, I think from the beginning of my training, is that in educational psychology, we also have a lot of opportunities, or at least in the ideal, we want to be able to do preventive work and not just intervention. So I think getting, you know, that kind of thought of how can I prevent or or prevent the problem or or work developmental, also my developmental interest of, you know, what are the developmental needs?
0: Mm. led me to do that do you think um was that something Sharon where it was always like easy like how did you kind of challenge the schools or the systems that you were working with right now the system isn't working when we just are fighting fires or we're just reacting to the situation need is increasing especially given the situation with covid and and how that's impacted children and young people and everyone to be honest um but it is something that we talk about all the time like this is how it would be better to practice it would be more efficient uh but yet we still can't quite do it because sometimes there's a a barrier in terms of that not being what schools see our role as or not what they think is helpful especially in our system where we have to kind of do the statutory work to get ehcps and that's how they get the funding for additional information uh, additional support sorry um so i don't know if there's anything for you where yeah, where you felt there was a turning point where schools would be more open to that or, yeah, just your thoughts on it, really?
3: Well, you know, I think a, a critical thing that, that in my studies, actually, when I studied with Gerald Kaplan, not with Gerald Kaplan, with, with Joel Myers, one of the things he made us do as graduate students and made us practice it as well was to write, like, Uh, an elevator speech promoting consultation. And we had to practice giving it to different staff in the schools. Uh, And his idea of getting a foot in the door. You see which teachers you can start with and how you can convince them that your work will be more efficient um, and um, and it doesn't always work. Okay, it doesn't always work. And it takes, I guess, being able to hear some no's. <laughs> um, but I think I was pretty convinced almost from the start that that was what needs to be done Partly because my interest in, in systems. Uh, I, I was as an undergraduate, I trained in sociology and anthropology as well as psychology. So I've always been interested in the, the broad picture and not just the individual child. Um, so yeah, I mean it evolved. I become much more successful at it with time. I knew which people to start with so that if you start with a key person and you succeed, they say, well, wait, I wanna get on board as well. Um, Starting with trying to work through the principle, which sometimes is possible and sometimes isn't. Uh, Setting the tone when you enter the system, Um, all of those things, I think. But yeah, there's a problem with the statutory mandated assessments and things like that that don't let you get to all the other things and that's a big problem here in israel right now as well that's preventing people from doing a lot more consultation that they'd like to do
2: well i also think that it's very different in different schools and that you have to work on so many different levels in order to get a consultation practice going Mm -hmm. In Sweden it's been easier since about 10 years back because we had a new uh, school law where it's mandated that what what school psychologists and uh, multi-professional teams that usually have social workers, special ed teachers, uh, psychologists, nurses and doctors which is supposed you are supposed to have that, and it's supposed to do preventive work and uh, promoting well-being. Uh, and now it's easier to talk about consultation, and you can talk about consultation as a preventive uh, effort in order to, to use psychology to to use psychology in the schools. Mm. Um, and talking about this, about the principle which is we have seen is so important in order to get the consultation work going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did an assessment of a, a, a team course that is given every year in Sweden for what we call student health teams, that is this kind of multi-professional teams in schools and their principals. And after uh, the course, what, what happened was that the Team said the most important thing was that we had the principal here to talk with, and the principal mm-hmm. said, "Well, now I look at promoting health and school psychology in a completely different way."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So those those that really turned uh, uh, that is really worked with this uh, training, yeah. that's when yeah. the principal could listen to the professionals in the multi-professional teams okay
3: the okay. other thing I, w- I would add in particular to israel is that the fact that we've had to um respond to um crisis situations mm. has uh increased the need to do consultation because when you have a war going on or post terrorist attacks and things like that, there's no way you can work individually with everyone
4: yeah yeah exposed. Yeah Yeah. you
3: have you have to work at a community at a school wide at the community level multiple
4: and I guess I was just wondering about your thoughts about kind of how how as consultants can we properly acknowledge the demand on teachers but that doesn't get so into acknowledging that that it kind of paralyzes us from being able to work with them as consultants because we're not therapists they haven't asked us for therapy we're there to do school consultation it's just recognizing how full up I guess the consultees are now and, and possibly will we'll, we'll get even more um, as we go forward.
3: Mm-hmm. Well for one thing, I, I just I, this afternoon, I was um, I, I was uh, we're doing some consultation with um, um, a group of uh, principals, actually, who are part of a, an educational in, innovation program sponsored by an NGO here. And these principals were talking exactly about what you're talking about, the going you know schools have just fully reopened in the last week or so and all the the demands and 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 how 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 it is psychologically for everyone and etc um i think as consult- as consultants one of the important things and and you know this is my ecosystemic take on it is to put things in perspective of the broader system to look not just at the fact that they're dealing with all these particular kids, but to see what are the resources available from the different parts of the system, uh, perhaps things that people haven't thought about, um, Things where, where are the tensions coming from, from the different parts of the system. And how can I support them in dealing with those tensions and helping them navigate the tensions? Um, tensions between we today. The the principal spoke about the fact that they've been given a lot of autonomy as uh, running their schools virtually, and now that they're back in the schools, the supervisory level has come back into play and all of a sudden they want all of the children's children assessed and they want them to be caught up in 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 what they're supposed to know by September or October and uh you know all these different things and and the tension between those two things uh so rather than looking just at the pressures they're under and how do they deal with the pressures vis-a-vis the individual children that they're working with and all the issues that come up in the school. Uh, Really helping put things into perspective and seeing how they can navigate the, the, the larger system. And even seeing sometimes how as consultants, we can help organize things perhaps at a community level. Uh, using psychoeducation and things of that sort, I do believe that we can be advocates in a sense of the children's well being, et cetera. And through that, creating uh, a more relaxed or, or a better atmosphere that enables them to deal with the other issues they're dealing with. So, yes, I do have to think at multiple levels all at once. And perhaps one of the things I would say to principals dealing with all kinds of things like that is, well, maybe we need to gather the parents and gather people from the community and help them understand what everybody's dealing with. And maybe if we all understand it together, each person will do their part, things of that sort.
2: Well, what I'm thinking when you're talking, I think of this, of having the system in your head, but... uh, when you meet a teacher uh, mm-hmm. all the time. and But still, I think that there is a you could create a feeling of safety for teachers if you have a consultation model that works. So they know whenever they are worried, whenever they think that this is a catastrophe, they have someone they can talk to.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, and in that case, if there is one child uh, who is behaving in a way that worries them. I'm sure there are lots of other children who have the same kind of problems. But If you can work with one child, with one teacher, she will also experience things that they can, she can use with other children. But I yeah. think it's, it's very helpful This to, that they have this safety to know that they always have someone they can talk to and that it's not very difficult to reach that person. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the things you have to work with in the schools and work with the principals of how do the teachers get in contact with the consultant and that should be very easy. That sort of just could lift the telephone and so say, "Could have a chat with you." Because so, I'm thinking about um Jess and Emma are both deployed into local
4: authority placements three mm-hmm. days a week. They're in their second year of their three-year doctoral training, and just even the idea—just as you're talking—I'm thinking, "Gosh, would a teacher know who their allocated psychological consultant is?" is there freedom for the teacher to be able to make a con like who navigates the time who's the kind of gatekeeper about, around the, the sort of the access I guess yeah. mm-hmm. um, and that knowing that there is that safe space or containing space that one can bring a school-based challenge to and, and to be able to think about it I guess yeah Um. and Jess do you feel the teachers in the schools that you're working in currently how do they know abouts or access the the EP service more
1: generally? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. It's come at an interesting time. I was in a um, planning meeting um, yesterday and it's just kind of like a midway planning meeting for the academic year um, with the SENCO. And actually I invited the head teacher who came along as well. Um, And it's a bit like what you were saying, Ingrid, about getting the principal involved in the head of the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just really interesting because I'd had all these referrals um, just before our Easter break um, for cognitive assessments, full cognitive assessments. That's how they were termed in the referral forms. (laughs) And it was really interesting to actually just sit with the um, SENCO and the head teacher and think about what was the reasons for these referrals? What, What would the use be for a full cognitive assessment? And actually, after an hour um, discussion, about six referrals, we realised actually there was only one piece of them that needed some kind of assessment work from me, but the rest could actually be done through a consultation um, approach. So we've actually um, come together and we're calling it an EP, Education Psychologist Clinic. (laughs) And what's happening is we're going to have some of the teachers come along um, and just have some consultations with me and think about how they can help support the children um, in the classroom and in the school and it's actually quite a nice way um, to work mm-hmm. with all of the teachers um, all together and actually have that access with me and it was it was quite interesting because one of the teachers had actually emailed me um, from a previous consultation that I'd had with that school before Easter and was saying I was just thinking about some of the things we discussed and I think it'd be quite helpful for one of my other um, children in my class but there's some other needs so I'd like to think about that with you. Um, And it was quite interesting, the SENCO was quite um, shocked that they had taken that time to email me and we'd been having that conversation and it was almost like it had to come then from the SENCO. Mm -hmm. I'm saying SENCO, I don't know if that's special education needs coordinator who we kind of contract the work with and is our main kind of um, person who as an educational psychologist we would um, speak to. Um, but I think she was really pushing um, the assessment and the full cognitive assessment work. And when the actual head teacher came in and was like, "Oh, this is a great way that you can actually speak to um, the teachers," so I'm hoping that's actually going to be a way going forward and having that school next year mm-hmm. and building up that relationship now with the head teacher. Right. So it's mm-hmm. it's really current and hopefully something that can be used. But I understand there are barriers um, with that, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there will be some more to come. Hmm.
0: I think that's amazing, yeah.
1: Emily. You
0: think like, <laughs> like, like, honestly Good work. <laughs> it sounds so it sounds really like yeah, out of the box thinking because I what my mind immediately went to was that it there is quite a stagnant pattern of you know referral from a SENCO to the Educational Psychology Service or the Link EP, um, that just kind of goes round and round and really for me or in my experience and speaking to other educational psychologists you only really speak to a teacher if a child is referred to you and the, that's their class teacher and then you kind of go in and i've had times where i don't know whether it's just my name being very common <laughs> but they'll be like oh i thought you were the the jessica the speech and language therapist or oh i thought you were this professional because obviously usually these children there's lots of professionals involved and i think often for teachers they Get a bit bombarded by all the professionals at once, especially when we're doing statutory work and everybody needs to request the information all at the same time. Um, and I was thinking, yeah, actually, in some of the schools that I've worked in, that's the only way that teachers are involved with the educational psychologist. Um, mm-hmm. so I guess their view of what we do is slightly different. And I'm not sure they would feel like they would have the freedom to kind of message and 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 ask or email us, sorry, and ask for mm-hmm. our input, but Maybe that is something we should be promoting, you know, as our role, yeah, more more flexibly. And I guess in, in places like the US, or I'm not sure, Ingrid, whether it's like this in Sweden, but if you're attached to a school, maybe in a bit more of a permanent way, then all the teachers perhaps know you a bit better, or if you've worked for, for a school for a long time, then you maybe get to know all the teachers. But I wonder if there's a way that, like you said, Emily, setting that up more quickly so teachers know who you are and that they could do that with you? I think it sounds like you're doing something really great there.
3: Well, one of the things we do here in Israel, and it may be the way our services are organized and the way, you know, the the overall guidelines or mission statement for what school psychologists do. uh, When a new psychologist is assigned to a school, we expect the psychologist to meet with the principal and introduce themselves. Hopefully, they also announce the fact that the school psychologist is there to the uh, parents. You know, whether it's in a newsletter or something like that, we have a school psychologist, etc. And I think that's a fantastic time and opportunity to sort of set the tone and say, you know, and to to do to um, you know to to check that that you have a common vision of what. What has to be, what can be, you know, the different options. As I said, because of emergency type of situations, sometimes you can get away with doing things or do things differently than you might have to do them other times. Um, it doesn't mean you don't get caught up with statutory work, but even part of our requirements and assessment is that when you're assessing a child, For special needs, you're expected to speak with the teacher and even observe the child in the classroom as part of, as one of the uh, data points in doing the evaluation. So, you know, we do get more involved perhaps at that level. And some get more involved at a community and systems level, others don't. It depends.
2: Well, actually, I do think as a school psychologist, when you are new, you need to be around in the school for the teachers to get to know you, because mm-hmm. they have to trust you. Yeah. When you have been there for a while, you have to sort of draw back, because that, otherwise it's very difficult to be a consultant because they want to draw you into all different kinds of things. And and usually, at least in Sweden, one psychologist have. Many different schools, yeah, uh, and uh, but I think in some schools perhaps it worked very fine with the consultation in other schools it doesn't work very fine. Mm-hmm. You have to make the make the ground for it. I think usually sometimes in, in Sweden also they do that one psychologist is the consultant to the schools and another one is the one who collaborates and do the assessments. Mm -hmm. in order to keep the roles. Because the difficulty, I think, if you have Mm. both roles and teachers really press on these that they want to have the assessment made. If you are a very experienced consultant, you may take that and say, okay, we'll talk about this. Uh, I know that you want this assessment, we'll see if we need it, but where will we start? What would you think? What would be? And perhaps it will end up as a consultation. But then you have to be rather experienced as a consultant in order to be able to turn a referral. No, this, I, this is I, what you were talking about.
4: Yeah, yeah no, I'm delighted to use the word turn because <laughs> obviously uh, the all of the students on the course um, when we talk about change in consultation and how change happens or how we might notice it happening and that kind of thing. um, Obviously, we'd like to talk about turnings and your work, Ingrid, on magic turnings and weather vane turnings. Mm -hmm. And it would be just so Amazing, just to hear a little bit from you now about about that work and about what you feel. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't think it's just for trainees. I think it's also for experienced practitioners who may be less familiar with, with your studies in that area. Mm-hmm. What are the kind of things that you really want people to take away or to understand? And when we're talking about turnings yeah. on those different levels around kind of at a cognitive level or emotional level and a kind of um, uh, emotional, motivational and cognitive level, yeah. What, what would be key things for us to take away?
2: Well, uh, I think about this uh, this turning, it came up as I got interested in it because that's when I was working as a consultant to daycare and preschools. And we experienced all the consultants. Uh, it was rather easy to work as consultant there because this was what they expected us to do. It has mm-hmm. been through the ground had been led before. So you just went in there and you, you just worked as a consultant and they want the preschool teachers wanted you to work that way. But we discovered this, so many of the colleagues that uh, you could work with the case one, two, three times and suddenly it turned. And with the turning said that they meant that, well, it's fine now, he doesn't do that anymore. (laughs) They said that we can handle it now. Well, okay, he gets into troubles. But, but we can handle it, we know how to do it now. So what I was thinking then was, what what is turning? What is this turning? And what I came up with was that uh, it is actually your representations. It's the teacher's representation of the problem, how they frame the problem, what they think about the problem. And that has to do with emotions and it has to do with thinking and it has to do with what you're, uh, prepared to do uh, something. I, I think that is the uh, important thing. Thinking of what do we want to change, what do we want to turn. It has something to do. Uh, it's about how the consultee perceive the client, mm-hmm. and how they perceive the client uh, that makes how they interact with the client. So if they perceive them different, they will interact differently, and that will in turn change uh, the, the client or the client's behavior. I mean, that's the sort of the theory or the idea that, that uh, mm-hmm. I came up with in the research. That's what I, I saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that is to keep in mind. And what I also saw in order to make this change occur As a consultant, you have to listen so intensely to the consultee to understand what is this representation. The only thing you can see in the in the room is the presentation, how they talk about it, how they if they flush or if they are are very upset. You can see that, but you don't know what they're thinking. You can just hypothesize what they are thinking. But you have to keep very close to this to listen and give back and then you have to get over to the challenging part as a consultant. You also get ideas in your head. Could it be like this? Could it be like this? If you start challenging too early, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But if you just go on and uh, just nod and and say yes and too long, nothing will happen either. So. And you have to go through this being a bit structured in between a bit neutral and then trying to challenge. Could it be this way instead? You know, I got a thought. And after a while, if you get into this mode of free thinking, of getting away from the how they presented the problem from the beginning, then you can talk very freely. And that's where things happen. I think Mm -hmm. that's when you can get close from this. uh, getting stuck yeah Yeah. so
3: I, i i might add that um ingrid i think focuses mostly on the individual teacher but one of the things that i've found particularly working in multicultural contexts um and it started when i was working with a group of preschools that very quickly developed grew up from uh, to work with the new Ethiopian immigrants who had been coming to Israel, uh, is that when we listen to the, how the teachers are presenting the problems and perceiving the problems, it's also important to see how these perceptions are, the, the commonalities of these perceptions among the different teachers in the group that we're working with. And in the community that we're working with, because that's where we can pick up on perceptions and and on, you know, the way they're presenting the problem that are a reflection of all kinds of prejudices, all kinds of preconceived ideas of these children that need to be changed at, at at a broader level um you know continually thinking of the different levels of the ecosystem and and where is the core of the where does that perception come from is it the particular teachers you know ala uh, kaplan is is it one of the difficulties of the teacher or does that difficulty exist at multiple levels of the system and sometimes you'll hear one teacher or two teachers say something a little bit different, but then when they're in the presence of the principal or the presence of the supervisor, they'll present it differently. And then you have a sense that, wait a minute, there's also a conflict going on that's beyond the individual teacher. And those kinds of things you need to sort of look at where they, where they come from. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, Sharon, you just mentioned the
4: point as well about kind of just generally thinking about, um, you know, multicultural consultation and, you know, Israel, Sweden, the UK, you know, and particularly big urban centres like where we're, we're based in London. Um, I think one of the things that we are very conscious of is a training course that we're a um, almost majority white faculty, Uh, is a majority white, is actually a majority white female profession, generally speaking, Mm
3: -hmm.
4: Um, and the the significant challenges that are presented when white people fail to understand that they themselves have a culture of their own, and this idea that diversity somehow sits with the other, and that the norm or the, the typical or the expected is the way in which we are, and I guess one of the things that we we have been increasingly, I mean it's a shame that it's only happening more recently and really, you know, could have should have been happening for, for a much, much longer, is noticing within the context of consultation issues around identities mm-hmm. and, and power that may be associated with, for example, being white, being middle class, mm-hmm. um, being heterosexual, like being the norm of whatever the majority is, or what's idealized within society, and not recognizing the need to adjust one's consultancy um, when consulting when there are cultural differences between the consultant, the consultee, and the client, or whatever constellation is involved there. Just on you know the basis of such breadth of experience that that you both have had in this area are there key things that you would be kind of advising people like ourselves who are white consultants, oftentimes working with people who don't look or sound or have the same background that we do um, about being more culturally responsive in consultation?
3: Well, um, I guess I've been influenced by two things in particular. One is my experience working with the Ethiopian preschools and one of the things that i saw was you know by looking beyond the individual teacher we could see the pattern of the way in which people were relating and then looking at the exception to that there were one or two teachers who were more successful and the researcher in me said wait a minute what what are they doing that's enabling them to do that. And that was when I identified the idea of reciprocal distancing, the fact that when a teacher is frustrated, they distance themselves. And particularly if you don't understand each other's norms, you get frustrated very easily and you pull away rather than getting closer to the child or closer to the parents. Uh, And there was one teacher who wasn't particularly distancing and when we talked together, she said, well, you know, I, first of all, she remembered what it had been like to be uh, a refugee from North Africa who had arrived in Israel and how her parents had been treated. And she said, I'm not gonna treat these parents that way. And she invited, she, she understood the culture and invited the parents to come in and to show her how they do things in their culture and let the children translate for her. So she empowered the parents and, and, the, and she had a very close relationship, even though they, none of them had language, by the way. In other words, these are people who were right off the plane who didn't know how to use Western facilities, Western food. It was, it was a total cultural shock. Um, and it was a fascinating experience. So that was one thing. And then the person who really conceptualized these things, I think particularly well, and I highly recommend her work, is Bonnie Nastassi's work on, um, on participatory culture-specific consultation. And the emphasis there is on really getting to know the culture and not getting to know it by reading about it or learning about it from, but getting to know it by letting people from within the other culture teach me uh, what things are, what's happening. You know, there's the the art of not knowing.
2: <laughs>
3: um, And I think it was Gregory Bateson who did family and system thinking who says there's no such thing as no information and, you know, there's always something there. Mm -hmm. And so involving the parents themselves, learning from them and learning from the children, you know, whether by observing, by asking questions really openly, out of curiosity, out of a desire to know and understand. And it's not always easy to do. It takes a lot of reflection and self-awareness. I think that's a, a key issue when I supervise people doing the work with Ethiopians. Um, and and we constantly do it. I'm part of a um, group that works on some of these things. and. We meet several times a year and people present cases and we're always thinking together about, you know, how do we keep ourselves from falling back into preconceived ideas.
2: No, that, that is the basics of all consultation, actually. Yeah. Because whatever you do in consultation, you go into another culture mm-hmm. uh, with those consultees that you have to get right. to know and as this not knowing if i'm a psychologist you are teachers you are uh, preschool teachers or what you are and i don't know what you're doing but i really want to know it i'm really interested mm-hmm. in it and and also having this um, thinking that what they are doing the really specific things they are doing uh, mm-hmm. that that is fascinating and you want to learn about it and you so uh, I think that that is really one of the basics, also to make this uh, sense of that we are professionals from two different professions. Uh, that I, I know my part, and you know your part, mm-hmm. and let's put this together. And also, I think to challenge yourself all the time, you get your own. Uh, hypothesis all the mm-hmm. time but you have to challenge yourself mm-hmm. every time you think that you're sure of they should do it in this way you have to challenge yourself thinking no. well why do i think this why why is it
4: and uh, it really yeah brings in that bit about doubt is not something Mm -hmm. to be afraid of it's something to be actively welcome and that one should doubt oneself not because it's a sign of insecurity but it's a real capacity to stay curious about you know Mm -hmm. how have I arrived at where I'm at I one thing that really strikes me I think from listening to you both actually is is the importance I guess and significance of of systemic thinking Mm-hmm. Within consultation, um, and and the not only the kind of ecosystemic kind of Bronfenbrenner kind of levels at which we can work, and thinking also then about the the time system, but equally about some of those core systemic concepts about being different but not too different, mm-hmm. being you know because otherwise you like you know Ingrid you were saying you lose the teacher if you challenge too too quickly, but actually if you're not different enough, there's nothing really for them to react or respond to in a way. And I think in my mind, when you were talking, it was almost like a dance and a very active dance, which I imagine is quite exhausting actually, as, as it's happening, um, to, to be different, but not so different that you put, put the other person off. And I think then, Sharon, linked to your work around supervision, I guess, if reflection and self-awareness are, as you quite rightly say, are crucial, I wonder, would you say just a little bit about how you see then supervision on consultation and, and, and just noticing some of the important factors around that? Yeah, I think,
3: you know, I think one other piece of it is not just reflection and, and doubting, etc., but also suspending judgment. Uh, we tend to be quite judgmental and our judgments about what, it, what should be uh, or how are very often colored by, by our, our cultural ideas that are, that are so ingrained that we're not even aware that they're cultural. Um, and I remember being told by one of the preschool teachers who saw one of the Ethiopian mothers, Uh, And she brought her child and the child had her hands, had two ribbons around the hands as if they were handcuffed. Okay. So the child was in, was held like this. And she was horrified. She was gonna report them to social services. And I said, you know, let's, let's try to understand. And the mother, was able to explain to us or so, or someone, you know, using translator, translators that this was their practice to keep children to learn not to hit. Now the child's hands were not severely restrained or restricted or anything like that, but she was teaching her child not to hit. And then we talked about the fact that, well, that's a value that we also want to teach our children not to hit. We do it in different ways, but if it's effective and it's not harming the child, is it really bad? So learning to to see things through the thought, and I think it's general to consultation, to see things through the eyes of the other, of the consultee, and not just through our eyes. And to also, when I do supervision, a lot of times what we try to do is look at it from multiple perspectives. In other words, how does the consultee conceptualizer see the problem? If we were to ask the parent, what would they say? If we were to ask the principal, what the, the principal say and what would the principal be saying about the teacher? And what would the other parents of the class be saying in other words looking at the different components because from an ecosystemic perspective from a systemic perspective what i've found is that often the problem is not just or not even the teacher with the particular child it's the conflict between the different parts of the system So we can work with the teacher and the teacher can end up being fine with that child, but then it will always have another problem to deal with. So when I'm supervising students or or trainees, mostly psychologists who are in the field now, I try very hard to help them map the system to see what all the different components are. Because very often we don't think about all the different parts of the system and see how those different components influence one another. Okay, Um, and what are the needs of the different people or different um, forces within that system. Because the needs are, are, are terribly different and I work with a preschool teacher on behaving differently with the, these new immigrant children, but then the supervisor is demanding something else. She's going to be caught in the middle, no matter what I do. So, and, and as a consultant and as a trainer of consultee consultants, I want them to be able to see where those pitfalls, where those difficulties can be so that they can work on them. And and yes, as a consultant, as both as a consultant and as a trainer, I believe that consultants have an activist role. Um, so that sometimes, you know, as I said when I was working with the preschools of the Ethiopian children, I realized very quickly that there was no way these teachers could deal with the curriculum demands of the Ministry of Education, and the the types the children they were they were taking into these preschool classes and they said yeah but we can't talk to the supervisor you know there's no way and so i helped empower them and we created a joint meeting and presented um, developmental evidence and talked about needs of immigrants and things like that and we got them to change and to agree to do things differently um, in order to help the teachers learn how to deal with immigrant children, how to change the curriculum and adapt it, etc. Um, and it was, of course, much more effective than working with any individual teacher. Um, and, and I try to get the, um, my, my trainees to, to see these things, to see all the different pieces and to see how the different things influence one another. Even using- Yeah, and
4: also I think it's that bit about encouraging people to see their role as one of um, not accepting things as they are, but seeing mm-hmm. oneself potentially as an advocate for change. Multi- like it, it doesn't have to be about a passive acceptance. Right, It can be about creating or, or providing an idea of a preferred future Mm-hmm. Uh, things don't have to be the way that they are, um, right. you know, and and holding on to that hope, I guess, within maybe very stress systems as well. I think probably it's mm-hmm. really important to have have somebody there who can remain in a hopeful place um, yep. because of the the challenges I think people are experiencing.
3: Using systems maps helps the students identify what what we call the port of entry.
4: Okay.
3: Where can they influence a person or a piece of the system that will then have ripple effects because Mm -hmm. one of the things about consultation is we want to have a ripple effect Mm. yeah such a good
4: point um and i am thinking actually about that that um that feels like a really brilliant thing to be introducing trainees and qualified practitioners to is the idea of systems maps and perhaps Maybe I don't know implicitly do it, or you know find ourselves doing it by accident, but actually equipping people with a tool that can kind of almost prompt the thinking could could yeah. feel really really helpful. And on on that note, and obviously Sharon, you mentioned Bonnie, uh, Nastasi, and her work. Um, I referenced Bateson, I talked a little bit about Kaplan, your own work, both of you. Um, if there was one thing looking back on your careers now that you thought, I wish I'd read that or I saw that or I listened to that person speak. Is there any one thing that you'd recommend to novice consultants that you go, this was the thing I wish I'd gotten sooner? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> a small, tiny question.
2: Uh, I would say about this, about family therapy. I think that's something that at least in Sweden, for, for psychologists, it has been forgotten almost. I think mm-hmm. that other professionals are working with a systemic uh, family therapy, much more, but not psychologists and they're not very much trained in it. Really? Uh, no, not, not anymore, no, more than it does today. And I think that's something that you could take up again, because I think that's from this system perspective to to think of, of families and to think of groups in, in formal systems and what happens when, if someone changes, what happens with other ones? Uh,
1: mm-hmm. I think
2: that's very important. And I think most of us, uh, or most of the consultants, as we know, they do work with groups of consultees. So lots of things happens in the groups, too, that you have to be aware of. So I think also group psychology and social psychology uh, is important for for. I just want to add to what, what Sharon was saying about this uh, uh, supervision. I do think that consultation is lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. And so, and what we are doing, I think in, in, in here that even if you are an experienced uh, consultant, who have been working for a long time, uh, you are usually, you get paid supervision. Uh, mm. And I think that's if you want to to continue to develop i think that's necessary or if you don't get supervision at least that you have colleagues that also work with consultation so you can so you can reflect together because i think that is what is necessary not not to get stuck in 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 your own head and get stuck with trying to diagnose the children even if you're a consultant which is very easily done if you don't have this sort of a reflection. area
3: where you can do this i w- i would second what uh, ingrid says about uh, family su- understanding family systems and studying family systems that was definitely something that influenced me um if there's something that i didn't study or didn't study until much later that i think would be important it's some of the uh, basic systems literature such as kurt levine Mm -hmm. Um, going way, way back, but Mm -hmm. some of his ideas are just still so relevant. And then also some of the organizational,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. uh, the organizational development and organizational systems work uh, that give uh, educational psychologists, I think we need to have a good understanding of how schools work as organizations. Mm uh saracen's classic work on the culture of the school and the problem of change i think is is something that i read fairly early on um and it's something that i think is an important piece for school psychologists to mm-hmm. have it Most think
2: in your background i'm sorry but if you have uh, many psychologists in the uh, community You can work both on principal level and on teacher level, perhaps not in the same school, but uh, working with as a consultant for principals or head teachers Mm -hmm. with this type of questions, I think also would be a good consultation. But it's difficult to do with the teachers and the principals in the same school.
4: I think that point about boundaries and, and just, you know, you mentioned earlier about trust. Mm-hmm. And kind of recognizing that obviously there are you know practical issues and there are probably pros of other things, but again that idea about a containing and and sort of trusting space where one can truly come and and there's no you know picking up on presentations of you know the nuance in a voice or a kind of a look for people to truly be a bit freer to be themselves in those spaces, I guess there's a real need to feel like the consultant can protect the space efficiently um, and, and, have that there. Yeah. It's was really, really helpful. I'm, (laughs) I <laughs> wanted I have so many honestly I've got a big list and I'm sure um, and Jess do too. Um, so I'm going to stop talking and leave the final question maybe to 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 either of them. Um, anything else you guys would like to ask before we have to let Sharon and Ingrid go? <laughs> it's okay. uh,
2: I was just thinking of another name when we were talking about this multicultural issue of of course Colette Ingraham. Is the one right who has been working with the the, the multicultural right. consultation.
4: Definitely. I we you know, we would have inter- I mean, I think one of the things that we do try to focus on um is one of the first stages of, of Colette's work around kind of self-awareness and really trying to understand mm-hmm. your own worldview right. to pick up on quite a bit of what you guys have already been speaking about, that actually kind of maybe to start with the self mm-hmm. and understand yourself a little bit more um hopefully that frees you up and your knowledge and understanding of how you're approaching how you're approaching things feels really um important I actually brilliantly and um Antoinette Miranda has very kindly agreed mm-hmm. to come on um mm-hmm. to the podcast and talk a little bit about consultation across cultural contexts. so really I think that's Friday I really excited actually you're going to get to speak with her too but yeah um Colette's work is is Yeah,
1: really helpful.
4: Yeah, yeah. Jess or M, your last words.
1: I think it's more just to say thank you so much. And I think all of my questions were covered in the terms of you know what to go go away and think about now and the different kind of starting points and just learning from your experiences. Um, And it's just key. I'm just really grateful for your time. And so thank you both so much
0: yeah I would echo that um it's been really great to talk to you and I am sad that it's
1: over and I probably do have a lot more questions
0: um that I would like to ask you especially about both of your work but I think that yeah possibly we might might speak to in the future or or keep connected as well and make sure that we're having these sorts of conversations on in an ongoing way um Mm -hmm. because I think we learn so much from this sort of style of learning i guess like when you can have a rich discussion and a conversation like this with people like yourselves who have you know made huge strides in in this field and are just so interesting to speak to so yeah a big thank you to both of you for coming on i
4: think that actually that point about being able to talk
0: together Mm -hmm. i suppose is probably one of the
4: end points i guess is to kind of talk just that tiny bit about um ispa Mm-hmm. and how it does provide not it's not you know direct it's it is a space where it, you just can come and speak with other people and i guess i'd, I'd yeah I would just like for both of you to say something about would you recommend this what would be good if people haven't been involved with this but before what might they gain um yeah just to, to say a little bit and particularly about the the Consultee Centered Consultation
0: Task Force. And also what it stands for, because I think lots of people might not know what ISPA stands for.
3: (laughs) Well, ISPA is the International Association of School Psychology. It's been around for a long time. I remember being introduced to it as a graduate student in one of the earliest conferences that occurred here in Jerusalem, here in Israel. Um, I was a master's student at the time. And uh, Ingrid, actually, I think you started the consultee group, didn't you, Ingrid?
2: I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And then I joined her.
3: Um, The truth is that one of the things we keep talking about at our roundtables and committee meetings, we have an annual conference in the summer and we try to get everybody together and have a round table, which we'll have again this summer. It'll be virtual probably, but you know who knows? <laughs> and I'm really grateful to Emma for joining, joining the effort. Um, one of the things we keep talking about is trying to set up an online um, conversation slash peer supervision platform through ISPA for people from around the world to talk about consultation and consult one another with issues, cases, what have you. Uh, The truth is that I certainly, and I think I can speak for Ingrid, you'll say your own word. Uh, We didn't have the kind of um, technical skills to get it off the ground maybe with young people like uh, you, Jessica and Emily, we can you know, get people like you to join us and to become involved. And the more we can get people involved uh, doing this, I think we can continue to really promote the identity identity of consultation as a specific uh, and separate skill and uh, Piece of our profession, a very important one, a core core one, and uh, and keep things going and keep things the, as professional as possible. So, yeah, I think ISPA can play an even more important role. Perhaps even using, if if it would be possible, uh, enabling ISPA to uh, promote. platform that you have with with the podcasts and stuff would be a good thing um so we have to think of more and new and creative ways to move forward
2: and i think it's a very good time with young people coming in i think we started sylvia rosenfield was the involved too which is another person you could right for sure um but also i think there were these pioneers but i think during the last years, the last ISPA we went to, uh, the, we're, I think it's spreading more around the world now with consultation mm-hmm. uh, than about 10 or 20 years ago. So I think that there's sort of a new wave coming and there's, it's really needed with young people coming into this. And, and I think that ISPA is a good platform for it. And particularly as you say, if you can do it also online, quite a bit more, which I think is, it will be the new way to do very many things, even after the Covid situation. Can
4: I, yeah, I would just reiterate absolutely what Em and Jess have said about saying thank you again. And um, we will, I'm sure, be trying to twist your arms to get you to come back so that we can talk again. Um, But for the time being, thank you both very much. You're
3: very welcome. It's been my pleasure.